This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Welcome to the 100th episode of the Law Bites podcast. It's fair to say that when I started the podcast back in 2019, I wasn't thinking about 10 episodes, much less 100. I simply wanted to find another forum for discussing digital policy with a Canadian perspective, and a podcast seemed like the right avenue to do it. Along the way, the podcast has been more work than I might have expected, and also a lot more fun. I've been privileged to have an incredible array of guests, law school colleagues, experts from around the world, politicians, privacy commissioners, business executives, and community leaders. I'm grateful for their time and willingness to use the podcast as a way to bring their thoughts and ideas to a broader audience. I'm also thankful to the many listeners who provide feedback and tune in each week, and I'm particularly grateful to Gerardo LeBron LeBoy, who not only created the music that accompanies each episode, but provides the essential editing and technical support that makes the podcast a reality. The role of the public and the public interest has factored prominently into many of my podcast conversations. I could think of no better guest for the 100th episode than Osgood Hall Law School professor David Vaver, widely and rightly viewed as Canada's leading IP expert. Professor Vaver, who's a recipient of the Order of Canada, provided the scholarly grounding for the emergence of user rights and copyright in Canada and around the world. In this episode, he gives a masterclass in the history of copyright, the emergence of user rights, Supreme Court of Canada copyright jurisprudence, and the potential for future copyright reforms. David, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure, Michael. Yeah, it's great to have you. This is—I never thought I'd make it to a hundredth episode, but uh, here I am. And you know, users' perspectives have really played a prominent role on many, many of the episodes. It doesn't matter the issue. There's a sort of there's a commonality when when you think about some of these issues, and it's that kind of public interest user perspective that cuts across digital policy. And so, uh, having you come on to to talk about user rights, I think, is is really appropriate and and really a wonderful way to mark mark that hundredth episode. Now, as you obviously know, and, and, and I'm sure some listeners know, that the notion of user rights in copyright in particular burst onto the scene with the Supreme Court of Canada's CCH decision back in 2004, and uh, they drew notably on your work, of course, um, including that user rights, and I'll quote, user rights are not just loopholes, both owner's rights and user rights should therefore be given the fair and balanced reading that befits remedial legislation. And so why don't we start, I want to talk about some of the development of the case law recently and where things might be going, but why don't we start with the development of user rights within your own work? Can you describe how you began to articulate this vision of a rights-based framework for what others previously described, and I guess we should note some still describe as a, a limitation or exception? Yes, well, thank you, Michael. The, um, actually, the, uh, the, the number 100 is significant in another respect, as you know, that uh, uh, this is the year when uh, uh, the 100th year since the uh, introduction of the Copyright Act of 1921 of Canada. So here we are in 2021, in 2021 discussing something which uh, was latent in the uh, law in uh, 1921, but as you say, uh, burst on the scene, uh, uh, apparently with, uh, to the surprise of many, although there it was, uh, hiding uh, in the bushes, uh, only to be uh, only needing to be lured out by a cheerful court. Um, 
you say that it burst onto the scene in 2004. That's uh, uh, quite right in, in one way. But I think uh, what a lot of people have ignored was that the, uh, the Court of Appeal, the Federal Court of Appeal, which uh, uh, was the, uh, gave a judgment from which the uh, uh, appeal was taken to the Supreme Court, uh, it also quoted from my book, and it started talking about user rights in that language as well. So it laid the foundation uh, in 2002 for what the Supreme Court uh, laid down. And in that sort of way, we in fact see that this is not only the, uh, uh, the decision of a nine-person court of the Supreme Court of Canada, but also uh, three other judges in the, uh, in the uh, Court of Appeal as well. So it's, uh, it's, it ought to have... Uh, attracted uh, uh, some uh, greater attention uh, uh, in that, just from that perspective. Well, I guess I came to this in this sort of way. I've uh, been attending, I've been attending lots of conferences as we do, and uh, I came away from many of them dissatisfied with the way in which people were analyzing this field. And it just didn't make sense to me. It didn't make sense to me at a, at a, in a semantic way and it didn't make sense to me in the context of balancing rights and it didn't make any sense to me in terms of policy. So in a semantic way, I mean, we look at the Act, the Act says what owners' rights are, uh, and then it says um, uh, what is not an infringement of copyright. It's said in those words, it is not an infringement of copyright to do a whole bunch of things. So it seemed to me uh, semantically that owners' rights stop at the point where others are able to do things which don't infringe the owner's rights. So um, uh, it, 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 it just didn't seem to me in terms of uh, language that this was an exception, no more than having an island in the middle of a sea where you say the, the uh, uh, sea is an exception to the land and the land is an exception to the sea. You don't talk in those ways uh, about... Uh, uh, physical environment. Why would you talk about that sort of way in a, uh, that sort of uh, way in a legal environment? So I thought the semantic argument I thought uh, was a jumping-off point. But as soon as one went into that, uh, of course, you started going into uh, the question of balance. And we know that rights uh, rights that uh, are given in in almost any area uh, are not absolute. Uh, they are uh, balanced off against other people's uh, interests. Uh, and uh, the question of balance, though, it's important to, again, to be quite clear semantically about it. Once you start talking about balancing rights against limitations and exceptions, that's the end of the game. You, uh, you're talking about balancing different uh, entities. So it seemed to me that what was wrong in talking about users uh, having rights? Um, it, there was nothing wrong with it, unless you went into a very pedantic sort of argument, uh, as one has with some of the uh, uh, legal philosophers who talked about rights, uh, not having, people don't have rights unless there are correlative duties and so on. But... Uh, that is a very technical version of what uh, rights mean. Uh, the main, one of the main definitions in any dictionary, including the Oxford English Dictionary, including Samuel Johnson's dictionary back in the 18th century, of rights is simply entitlement. 
uh, and uh, you don't some entitlements you have with, that you're able to transfer and some you're not. Um, why would you call one set of entitlements that are transferable rights and another set of entitlements that you have exceptions? It made no sense. It doesn't make sense linguistically. It doesn't make sense in policy terms. And it doesn't make sense uh, if you're trying to balance things. So uh, I came with uh, those sorts of uh, that sort of thinking uh, uh, into the subject. And then, of course, as soon as you started doing a bit of research, um, you saw that this is not uh, something terribly new. Uh, this is uh, uh, we seem in the 20th century to have uh, developed a, a view of. Uh, copyright, uh, which somehow has been uh, foisted on us uh, with uh, uh, interest groups who shout loudest and, and, and uh, talk in terms of uh, rights and limitations and exceptions. And I think my work was designed to counter that. I'd say I don't understand uh, in, a, in both in terms of policy, in terms of uh, technicality in terms of linguistics, uh, why uh, it is justifiable to look at this area in that sort of narrow and crabbed way. It doesn't uh, lead to any sensible conclusion. Uh, the only conclusion that you can come from is that uh, owners are people who have rights and uh, everybody seems to be uh, uh, indulged uh, as a matter of sort of noblesse oblige. And we let you do these things because we're owners. These are exceptions, things uh, that, that have to be closely confined and narrowly construed. That made no sense either. It was counter to our own statute and the uh, our interpretation legislation, which said that all legislation requires to be interpreted as a, in a fair, large and liberal manner. And that uh, means every provision. Why would you interpret rights? Benevolently, beneficially, liberally, and uh, and and uh, uh, then go on to another provision and say, well, this 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 has to be interpreted contrary to that, and not not in the way in which the Interpretation Act says that all statutes have to be interpreted and all provisions have to be interpreted. Suddenly, we come up to, say, to provisions which we're supposed to interpret narrowly, and I say, well, where do you get that from? Where does that come from? doesn't come from our law, doesn't come from anybody's law, it's contrary to our law. So um, it's, as you see, it's a, a mixture of ideas. It's not a single concept that brought me to this situation. It, uh, it, it was a confluence of ideas, which I think thought uh, pointed irrevocably uh, and irretrievably to, uh, uh, to the conclusion that users had rights and that they were just as important as owner rights. And in fact, what is the point of copyright if it's not used? If uh, uh, there is no hierarchy in copyright which says owners are the uh, people or owners or authors, although authors somehow uh, get uh, sidelined very quickly uh, as soon as there is an assignment of copyright, a transfer of copyright, and the thing is really about owners versus users. So why is there, why is there a hierarchy where owners are treated as uh, somehow... Uh, higher up the, uh, in the pecking order than users. That made no sense at all, because if you have no use, there's no point in copyright at all. Uh, so uh, uh, those were basically my, my thoughts. And um, 
fortunately, uh, uh, one or two uh, judges uh, initially uh, appreciated the, the, the point, especially in an era after we uh, have had the Charter of Rights and Freedoms where courts were talking more in terms of rights of people uh, and not talking in terms of the narrow concept that some lawyers have of rights that if it's not something that you can sell, then it ain't a right. Um, that's not uh, the way in which the Charter of Rights and Freedoms was, was, uh, was written. It's not a charter of exceptions and limitations. It's a charter of rights, the right to vote is not transferable, and yet there it is in the uh, Charter. So there's, uh, I think that uh, uh, my writing uh, came at an opportune moment uh, in the history of the uh, Supreme Court uh, uh, jurisprudence, and uh, it was really a, a, a door that was waiting to be opened. Yeah, no, I, th I think you're right about that. It's quite clear. It was obviously a unanimous decision, and uh, coming after Thébert, you started to see a bit of a shift, and uh, this marked a, a dramatic shift. Uh, I want to come to some of the reaction post CCH in a moment, but you know, amongst the the, the many different influences that you mentioned, one was was the was the history that when you started unpacking where things had been, that it was there. In fact, when you wrote about the CCH decision, you talked about you, you stated, and I'll quote it: uh, "In talking of user rights in the 21st century, the Supreme Court of Canada has re resurrected, perhaps unwittingly, a usage and tradition stretching back into the 19th century that had become obscured for most of the 20th century." until Patterson and Lindbergh drew attention to it in their 1991 work. Can you talk just a little bit about uh, some of that, that historical foundation that, that underlies this notion? Yes, I think that's right. I think uh, uh, it is important. So in a way, um, we've forgotten how uh, all-embracing, all-encompassing copyright has become in the 20th century. In the 19th century, you didn't have... Uh, a great deal of need for a concept of users' rights because owners had so few rights themselves. Um, so owners didn't have the right uh, to translate anything. Uh, they didn't have uh, uh, rights um, to uh, uh, dramatize, uh, which was a really, uh, uh, so you now we look at it, it's quite shocking to think that you could put on a play called Great Expectations by uh, uh, and uh, based upon Dickens's work, and Dickens could not uh, uh, in any way um, uh, prevent that. Um, we, that's that's looking at it through the eyes of the uh, of the twentieth uh, 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 century. So you didn't talk a lot about user rights uh, then, because users had plenty of rights. They could translate things. They could dramatize things. Uh, and uh, lots of, uh, of uh, work was simply uh, unprotected. So, and moreover, the concept of uh, what, what was an infringement of copyright was uh, quite sensible. What, uh, it talked, what it talked about was unfair appropriation was, was, the, was the touchstone of, of uh, infringement. Uh, you could appropriate for uh, other people's work. Uh, it's only when you did that unfairly, and what unfairly meant, uh, I'll mention in a moment, what only if it was an unfair appropriation was it considered an infringement. Uh, so what was unfair 
unfair meant that it somehow injured the work of the copyright owner. It damaged him in some way. It undercut uh, the, uh, the value that he wanted to get from his work. And I think there's no better example, actually, of this than the first major book, or certainly in the second half of the 19th century, in England on copyright a book by a fellow called Coppinger, who was a young barrister who wanted to make his name, and uh, he decided to write a book on, on copyright. So what did he do? He um, started writing, and then he, but before he started writing, he looked at a lot of other books. He looked at one in particular in the United States uh, by uh, a uh, writer called uh, George Curtis. And Curtis had a book on copyright, uh, and uh, Coppinger, the English barrister, it didn't feel any compunction in taking great chunks of that work and his work uh, um, but selectively. The best part I liked was when he took the, the entire uh, section on what constitutes a copyright infringement and wrote it virtually verbatim in his book. Um, there's, a, there's a sort of irony that uh, 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 what, uh, because neither statute in the, either the American statute or the British statutes at the time uh, had any definition of infringement. You had to sort of uh, make it up, the courts made it up as they went along by saying, well, it's not everything that uh, takes a little bit from somebody else's work is, is an infringement. It's got to be unfair and we've got a few criteria to determine when, when it is unfair. Well, those criteria were written out by Curtis and, and Coppinger had no compunction whatsoever in copying them almost literally, even to punctuation. Uh, and the, the, what I found was interesting, not a peep that we know of out of Curtis uh, in complaint. And, and no, none of the writers of the time, uh, legal writers who recognized uh, this uh, uh, copying by Coppinger, I should call it Coppinger the copier, you may recall. Uh, none of them um, uh, uh, called this uh, piracy and, and uh, I know the various other defamatory things that denote uh, that people that uh, uh, take uh, uh, bits out of other people's work are called. Um, it was perfectly acceptable. Why? Because Curtis's sales didn't fall one jot because of what uh, Coppinger did. They didn't fall one jot in the United Kingdom or the United States, nor did Coppinger's work uh, get any additional uh, buyers in the United States or any additional buyers in the United Kingdom as a result of what, uh, what was done. So there was no harm at all to Curtis's work to his rights uh, and we find in fact as we go on and this is i think the interesting part that uh, the language of of people having rights of fair use uh, started uh, becoming uh, not uncommon in in parlance in england so much so that when fair dealing was first introduced uh, as a statutory concept in the UK's Copyright Act of 1911, the then current editor of Coppinger's book, it had gone through a number of uh, 
editions. It's now in its, I think, 16th edition and counting, but I think it was about the third or fourth edition. They're the, but Coppinger had since passed on, and the work was being done by his uh, son-in-law, uh, who was a barrister. And uh, the son-in-law, is called Reeston, um, talked about the 1911 introduction of fair dealing and said, well, why is this here? Why do we need this? Well, people already have, and he called them rights of fair user of work. What does this add to the law? It does nothing. It's just going to be mischievous. So um, that was the state of the law at the turn of the century of the 19th, at the turn of the 20th century. And it became obscured, I think, because uh, uh, the uh, constant uh, uh, pounding of, uh, uh, of interest groups here has obscured it. The trouble, of course, was that uh, even uh, barristers like Coppinger, they made their money uh, out of uh, uh, getting uh, out of out of uh, enforcing the rights of owners. There's no money in, in user rights uh, at that stage, or for quite a little time later. And we find that with the subsequent editors of Coppinger, that was so. Uh, the United States, I think, the interesting thing you mentioned, uh, uh, Patterson and Lindbergh's work in 1991, they came from, uh, Patterson was a, uh, a very fine uh, copyright professor in the University of Georgia, and uh, Lindbergh was an a, a, um, uh, English uh, uh, professor. Um, they wrote uh, their book on user rights in copyright from... Uh, a, a First Amendment perspective, the United States perspective, saying, look, we've got all sorts, copyright is something which, uh, which uh, cuts down freedom of speech, uh, and uh, we have to reconcile it with the constitutional right of free speech. Uh, and by, we can do that by recognizing that users have rights of expression just as much as owners have. So they came from it from that perspective, less from a historical perspective uh, going back through the uh, 19th century uh, case law than from a First Amendment perspective. And I think that's perfectly legitimate. Um, when you come to CCH, we have, a, it is an extraordinary uh, decision uh, in this sense that uh, here we have the most expert panel you could have on the kind of work that is being talked about, right? We have cases where you have judges telling you what is a fair dealing with a work of art or with a piece of music, and judges, for the most part, uh, with a one or two exceptions, uh, know no more about art or music than uh, the uh, person in the street. Uh, and uh, but but that wasn't what uh, the CCH decision was about. The CCH decision was 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 uh, a serendipitous decision in this sense that uh, publishers of legal works, copyright uh, the the uh, works of uh, 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 law reports, law reports reporting judges' decisions, uh, monographs in in in. Uh, a compilation of books, um, textbooks. Uh, they came to court since they couldn't uh, get uh, anywhere 
with lawyers or the law society, they came to court and, uh, and said, look, um, the law society, which has a law society of now uh, Ontario, then was the Law Society of Upper Canada, um, you have a library and you have uh, our books uh, in it and lawyers who are doing research um, use your photocopy machines to copy bits out of our, our books. Um, and uh, there are uh, people out in uh, northern Ontario, lawyers out in northern Ontario who are, uh, ring in or uh, dial or send in uh, a fax in saying, look, uh, we don't have any, any books up here that uh, in our community, but I really need to have access to um, this particular case or that particular book and uh, that particular index. Um, can you send me uh, a copy of it, uh, asking the Law Society librarians? And the Law Society librarian would duly fax them the relevant material. Uh, not entire books, by any means, of course not. No one was going to do that. Yeah, everybody knows that's, that's an absurdity. To, uh, you're not going to send, uh, someone says, I have a problem on the law of copyright. Uh, why don't you send me all of Fox's entire book on copyright? No, no one in their right mind is going to do that. They know straight away that's absurd. But what was being asked for was, uh, you know, a section on uh, on a musical work. What is a musical work? What is infringement of a musical work, or so on? And that was that would be sent, and perhaps with the case with the case as well. So the so the uh, uh, publishers said, well, you um, law society, you are authorizing infringement. You're, you're letting people infringe by having these photocopies machines. It ain't good enough just to put a notice on the machine to say, be decent, be good, uh, don't infringe copyright. Uh, you've got to do more than that, and you're not doing more than that. Um, and, um, uh, and anyway, what, what is being done is not fair. It's not fair dealing. You're taking holus bolus uh, uh, works and judgments and uh, the uh, reasons for judgment with all our additions to them and you're taking indexes and all the rest. Well, um, here you had uh, the court, uh, a court of lawyers being asked to decide what is a fair way to treat, treat legal material, taking into account the needs of users, including their clients on the, law, on the lawyer's side, as well as what is reasonable for publishers to ask for in this field? Uh, how, can it, how is it reasonable for them to say um, you're infringing copyright when you copy a judge's judgment? Well, you've got no copyright in the judge's judgment. And just because you've stuck a few things on in it, which uh, are uh, head notes and catch lines, and uh, you've, you've created some value, additional value for it, for sure. And you may even have a copyright in that additional value. Although not in the judgments themselves, I mean, it was uh, it was it seemed as if the lawyers, uh, the law publishers, were saying that their version of the judge's judgment had copyright. Well, that was that's that was a fascinating uh, 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 suggestion in itself. How how is that going to uh, be? Uh, judge can't quote himself again to without because you've uh, you've uh, corrected some of his spelling or some of a, a, a grammar, grammatical infelicity or something that, like that. Um, and uh, that gives you the right to what, to stop the judge, the judge using that again? 
I mean, it, it, it became at one point an absurdity. But even in the bits where they did have copyright, where they, uh, the, the, uh, the court said, this is really necessary. This is necessary. You're copying that, we, that the law society knows about uh, and that lawyers are doing is reasonable, it's fair. They're not taking the entire book. In a way, they are publicizing the book. They're giving it additional validity and, and authority. So, um, so long as you keep within reasonable boundaries, so long as you don't take too much of somebody's words, so long as you don't cut into the value of what they're doing, um, what's wrong with that? And so that's what the uh, court decided. And it said, it decided it in a most interesting framework because uh, the uh, publishers came into court saying the, the, the Court of Appeal had interpreted this all wrong. There's no such thing as user rights. It's wrong to interpret fair dealing broadly. You've got to interpret it restrictively. That was the argument. And the Supreme Court of Canada basically said, why? Why should we interpret it restrictively? This is an area where we don't, the legislature hasn't granted copyright for the sake just of owners of copyright or authors of copyright. It's granted it for the public's benefit. There's no public benefit in giving somebody a right without somebody being able to, to actually, uh, uh, the right to, to control copying. There's nobody to read it or use it. What's your, what, what's your point? If this is a... This is a right that has been given in the public interest for the public benefit, including the benefit of owners and authors and users. And we have to balance off all those various interests and not give priority the one to the other. Yeah, no, and certainly that emphasis on, on balance is one of the things, of course, that struck a lot of people. Now, coming out of that decision and its aftermath, uh, there were some that still remained pretty skeptical, especially around the issue of user rights. Um, you know, some were saying it was simply rhetorical or it was obiter. Um, in fact, there was certainly hostility, I think, from some of the rights groups. And and it's fair to say even a bit of skepticism still from some education groups who, who didn't dive in with both feet, certainly on fair dealing, and were still a bit reluctant. Uh, how did you see it? Did, uh, did any any of those reactions surprise you? No, none, uh, not really. That didn't surprise me. I think the ones that said this is uh, obiter, this is just a passing comment by the by the court really uh, I think they were uh, dreaming in technicolor I mean uh, when a Supreme Court writes a judgment a unanimous judgment under the under the signature of all nine judges every word in that judgment has been subject to scrutiny by all of them uh, and if one of them doesn't like it anything in the judgment uh, they will write a dissenting opinion, or they will write it if they say, "I agree with the I agree with the result, but I'll disagree with the way you stated it." Yeah, and, and this is why, and this is very common, the extraordinary thing, and uh, it was that this was a unanimous decision, carefully penned, no grammatical errors in it, um, no slip of the tongue, um, and uh, those, as I say, those uh, who uh, said this was uh, rhetoric, uh, and obviously not in the Greek sense, but the rhetoric is just uh, padding or just uh, 
uh, useless oratory, I think were had mistaken what had occurred. They'd mistaken what the Federal Court of Appeal had said so clearly and concisely, a unanimous decision on this point, and they mistake they mistook what um, Supreme Court was saying. They didn't have to put it in that way at all. Then there are lots of ways to decide this case, but not you didn't have to write it in this sort of way. Um, so uh, yes, no, I I, you, I I think you can lead a copyright owner to uh, to water, but you already don't can't make him think. Uh, and the education groups, well, education, yes, I think they they were uh, a bit. Uh, 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 flustered by it, really. I think the level, the problem is that it's a general problem with the copyright law. You have a lot of people saying what you can and can't do, uh, except very little of it has anything to do with the statute. You actually look at the legislation and uh, and look at it carefully, understand what it's about. It's uh, actually uh, gives a fair amount of, of uh, liberty to people to do this and that. Um, and I don't think, uh, and I think it's true that universities, on the whole, were not uh, were not very uh, 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 knowledgeable about this. Look, it's not uh, it's not just universities. I, I found uh, my discussions with uh, publishers how the publishers didn't have a great deal of knowledge about the copyright law. I think it was Jack McClellan that said uh, back in back in the days that he, when he was. Uh, the part, the owner, or part owner of McClellan and Stewart said, "You know, uh, he's, uh, copyright has got to be the most boring subject in the world," and 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 uh, that's right. Uh, anything's going to be boring if you don't understand it. And uh, I think uh, publishers are as responsible as anybody else at that time of, of uh, enormous ignorance about the law that they were dealing with. They dealt with contract, right? The argument was, "Look, I can do anything by contract." Yeah, well, you can do a lot by contract, but if you don't have a right to do it, if the right isn't there, well, what, are you, what, what are you contracting about? So um, that's, uh, that's, I wasn't surprised. I wasn't surprised at all. The only thing that I was, uh, that, that uh, I was, uh, no, I don't know. I'll, 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 no, I don't think I was surprised at all at the result. And what I was concerned about, of course, was uh, whether the court would uh, continue in this line, uh, or whether uh, it was a one-shot wonder—that that's true. That that part I was uh, I was a little apprehensive uh, about. But then, on the other hand, as I say, it was—it's uh, uh, a hard statement to walk back from. Uh, you have said it's a user right. The the next step will be to look at the implications of what you've said, uh, and that's what's been happening since uh, 2004 at the Supreme Court level. Yeah, no, I think that, I, th I think you're right. That provides a, a, a really nice segue, actually, to 2012 when we get the copyright pentology, uh, a series of five cases that uh, included several that involved these issues. And, and I think it's pretty clear that some saw it as a chance to unwind the, the user rights framing. Um, that obviously didn't happen. Um, what are some of your thoughts on what certainly seemed like a, a solidification of that user rights as a, as a central part of the copyright balance? And as you say, the beginning of an exploration of some of the implications of, of what that means. Yes, I think uh, uh, the, the 
the the copyright owners, I think, um, really didn't, still didn't understand the environment in which they were working. I think it's uh, fair to say. They still came back saying, interpret this narrative. And of course, judges sitting there said, well, look, uh, you know, eight years ago, we called this a user right, or what? and we said it ought to be interpreted liberally. And it, what, what, are you telling us now we should be reversing ourselves? What's, what's your justification for that? Well, they had no justification for that. Uh, just uh, rhetoric. So, well, you, 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 you argued this in 2004 and you lost. So, why are you coming back and doing this again to us? You had, not only did you lost, you lost in grand style in both the appeal court and the Supreme Court. Um, so, I think there was a strategic uh, mistake uh, on the copyright owners to. Uh, in doing uh, in coming forward uh, in, in that sort of way and they came forward in a way which uh, made them look greedy i think if there's one thing that you know about law or about life you may very well have a right uh, but it, it's not that it doesn't mean that you have to enforce it to the hilt or argue that it should be enforced to the hilt um, because sometimes you just look damn greedy. And um, I think that the uh, court, at least a majority of the judges there at least, uh, looked at this and say, well, how many rights do you want? And how many rights do you need? And how much do you actually want to make out of this right? And can you get, can you be better off by splitting your rights and stacking them than if you just were a simple uh, uh, owner and, uh, and, and we're just uh, asking to uh, exploit it in a regular way. You, sh you shouldn't be better off simply because you're able technically to split your rights in all sorts of directions and say, oh, no, I'm, it's not really the owner. Uh, it's not owner A who is asking this. This is owner B. Well, you know, don't you think the court can see behind that? And, and they did. The court, so as a majority, did. Now, the... Uh, uh, you're right. I mean, you've written some uh, uh, great work on this, Michael, yourself, so I'm uh, not telling you anything new about it. But it's, it's uh, the, the court uh, decided, I think, um, does it make sense if you're selling music and you have uh, rights uh, to, uh, uh, in respect of that music, does it make sense to say, uh, that uh, putting a little clip uh, on to encourage someone to buy that music uh, ought to be in, in a copyright infringement, that we should get money from the person who wants to have a little listen to a piece of music uh, in a degraded form, not obviously not in, in uh, uh, high-fi, high uh, high-resolution uh, sound, uh, what sense does it make to say that they can't do that without without someone having to to, to pay them for that? That wasn't the law across the, the across the Atlantic. Uh, uh, there was which uh, was being decided quite uh, clearly that you know the right uh, someone that went into a record store and took a pair as as you could in those days and took a pair of earphones and asked the uh, clerk or clerk behind the desk, could you put on 
that bit of music, I want to listen to it to see whether or not I want to buy it. Of course, that was that occurred uh, and and occurred uh, uh, regularly. Copyright owners sued to say that was an infringement. The court said, "Well, we, of course, it's not an infringement. This is this is this is a perfectly acceptable uh, practice." And uh, in a way, we didn't have anything like uh, the statutory uh, right uh, that was relied upon in, in the United Kingdom uh, there uh, for that particular result. But it was the same sort of principle, wasn't it? You'd say, why would, why would you charge somebody to give them a little taste um, of, of your uh, ice cream uh, in order to uh, sell them the whole damn scoop? Made no sense. And, and so uh, I think it was a it was a silly case to bring, and 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 the result was a a, a set of uh, decision which the uh, um, uh, collectives and copyright owners generally certainly did not like, but it, but but they they really asked for it. Their their thinking made no sense in that sort of case at all. The case involving these uh, photocopying in secondary schools, which was the other major case in, uh, there, um, that, uh, that involved, uh, that involved a, a split in the court, uh, uh, more about whether or not you should just leave the copyright board alone to do, to do its thing, uh, or whether you should um, uh, review them a bit more critically uh, about whether or not photocopying was or was not a fair dealing. Well, um, the, the court's view that it could be taken as a fair dealing for the purposes of private study if teachers did it for the benefit of the students, that was quite, that was certainly a liberal interpretation. Um, it was an interpretation that again came back to the cultural roots of intellectual property and copyright. What do we have this for? Surely you want students to learn about your culture. You want to have the culture supported. You want to have it supported financially. Why wouldn't, why would you stop, why would you stop people learning about your culture while they are students? Um, and uh, in order that when they uh, become adults and, and, and uh, have money to spend, they'll be spending it on books. We didn't, we don't say, or books and film and theater and all the rest. We want people to understand the full richness of what's around them. And just giving them a taste, again, you're giving them a taste of what's going on through the, the excerpts from, from books or photographs or from snatches of music and all the rest. Um, you're, you're educating people to support your own culture and they'll do it economically when they have the money to do so. You don't want an ignorant population, ignorant of its own culture. Uh, that's not going to support the arts. That's not going to support culture. That's not, not going to support anything. So it, in the long run, of course, it pays to, uh, to uh, encourage teachers, professors to make works available in a reasonable way. You're not going to, if you're teaching Margaret Atwood's books, you're not going to say, look, um, here's the Here's a photocopy of the Handmaid's Tale. Handmaid's Tale. Uh, that's for you. You can read it now. That's that's a fair dealing. Of course, there's no one was doing that. Um, in a way, uh, professors and teachers are, are are very versed in the in the ethics of copyright because they are both producers of work. Um, 
as well as users, and they're producers of work for the benefit of students and for the benefit of the public. So they're very well aware of what ought to be ethically the limits of what other people can do with their work. And, and uh, you have to have uh, rely a little bit on their good sense, of course. You're always going to get some, some uh, person who doesn't... Uh, doesn't do the job, doesn't, uh, who, who abuses their rights, is always there. No one's, and no one's going to stand up for that. No university will stand up for that, let alone uh, uh, copyright owners. Obviously, the university polices these things in a way too. It doesn't want its reputation ruined by characters uh, copying the library and handing it over to students. It's, it's, just, it's just not on. So, um, yeah, so that, that, that's that's how I see the the the, uh, uh, the decision on photocopying, which is essentially said no reasonable bits. Um, nothing wrong with that, uh, and it should be uh, it should be encouraged. Yeah. Now, speaking of of university reputation, it brings us to the the latest case, and the last case that we'll, we can take a look at, which of course is the Access Copyright York University case, uh, with uh, again a unanimous court. Uh, strongly affirming user rights this time in a decision written by Justice Abella. Uh, I guess I should uh, start just by clarifying whether or not you had any role in the case, given that uh, you're, you're at York University, but even more, um, any thoughts on that longstanding litigation between the collectives and the education sector and on, on this decision as well, which feels a bit like it puts a capstone on, on, sort of on, on the, the kind of the, the progression of these decisions that you've just been describing. Uh, yes, I have. Uh, I had no role in the case at all. Uh, nobody asked me either for or against, uh, for an opinion for or against. The, the, uh, I think the university was scrupulous in keeping away from any of the uh, legal academics unless the legal academic wanted themselves, wanted to interpose themselves in some way and give their uh, opinion on the matter. Uh, I'm very conscious when I uh, write in about um, uh, copyright and intellectual property, I try uh, to remain as objective as I can, despite uh, my being um, uh, in, a, in a university. Um, I do very little uh, work, uh, opinion work for others. I don't want to sort of be a, uh, a party trees in any sort of way. Uh, so, um, uh, no, the short answer is, uh, that was the long answer. The short answer is no, I had no role in the case uh, one way or the other. Um, my thoughts on it, uh, well, um, I think collectives uh, and the education and collectives uh, can be useful for the education sector. I think, again, we just had a situation where there's just too much greed going on here. Uh, the, uh, the, the access copyright was uh, decided uh, that it was uh, not getting enough money per student. Uh, so uh, for, uh, for photocopying, they wanted more and they uh, upped their, uh, their, their request to um, uh, something like, I don't know, five or six or seven, eight times what, to what they had previously uh, uh, been uh, getting from the, the universities uh, under, under agreement. Well, what do they think was going to happen? Um, I, I, I can't, and then they were trying to do this uh, uh, across across the entire uh, university secondary sector, the secondary uh, tertiary sector, and, and uh, knowing that this would have uh, implications for uh, other universities and other educational institutions as well. 
um, they could hardly expect that, the, you know, that York would, uh, would take it lying down. And uh, uh, I think there, uh, and, and they have, uh, and they didn't, and they fought the case, even though, uh, and they slowly won, uh, slowly won, right? They lost, uh, the university lost completely in front of the first instance judge, uh, who said uh, that the uh, tariff that the uh, um, uh, that the uh, co uh, copyright collective had got from the copyright board was mandatory. Uh, as soon as one person uh, uh, copied uh, one book in the university, the entire tariff became payable for across the university. Well, <laughs> you know, stand back for a moment and think about it, think about the logic of that. There is no logic to that. And, uh, and the judge uh, also thought there was no fair dealing either. So up to went to the Federal Court of Appeal, and the Federal Court of Appeal finally understood the point. Uh, you know, uh, if one book is taken, that doesn't mean that you're going to get $25 per student because one, one student is, is, given, is, take, is uh, given a photocopy. Um, that, that makes no sense. And the, and the court... Um, Relying on uh, on some uh, careful uh, work, uh, historical digging, and 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 statutory interpretation, ex especially by uh, Professor Ariel Katz from the University of Toronto, um, said no, this tariff isn't mandatory. It has to be. It's uh, it's uh, uh, one. It is in effect an offer by the collectives, which uh, the university is free to accept or or not. If it's if it doesn't accept, then it's. Uh, it's potentially liable for infringement, but that all depends on fair dealing. But anyway, the four, that, so that that part was good for the York. Not so good was where the uh, Court of Appeal said, uh, uh, no, the judge was entitled to say this was not fair dealing. The re regulations that the uh, that York had uh, carefully uh, put together in, a, in an attempt to uh, allow uh, moderate uh, copying, um, they weren't fair, and uh, and uh, we'll. The Court of Appeal affirmed that. So when it went up to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court affirmed the Federal Court of Appeal's view that this wasn't a mandatory tariff, and uh, which, of course, left the copyright collective in a, an odd situation. They weren't copyright owners. They only had a, 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 a non-exclusive license to deal uh, with copying. But they had no standing to ask uh, for infringement, uh, any sort of infringement remedy. and But that, of course, left the university vulnerable as well because that's the court said, well, uh, if uh, the wrong party is in front of the court asking for infringement, how can we um, make a declaration uh, against uh, people who aren't parties to this, uh, that's the real copyright owners uh, who aren't here, uh, how can we make a declaration saying this is a fair dealing? So we won't do that. But we will say something. And what we'll say is uh, both the uh, federal uh, initial judge and the Court of Appeal uh, just got it all wrong. Um, the fact that this is a user's right means you have to consider all the users, not just the person that you say is allegedly infringing, that's the university, You've got to say, who, who are they doing it for? Who is the actual end user here? Well, it's the students. And by not looking at their interests and whether it was fair that they be uh, not uh, able to uh, access this work, 
uh, was was it fair on them? Um, the federal court, the, the lower courts had not decided that question at all. They just simply said it's not fair for the university to do this. Uh, a public institution set up under, uh, uh, for the purposes of educating the public uh, somehow had, uh, had, had, had got the public interest wrong in what they were doing. Um, so uh, Justice Abella, I think this was uh, the last case that she uh, heard before retiring and uh, quite appropriately wrote her judgment since uh, she had been quite instrumental in, in uh, two of the other um, uh, fair dealing uh, cases in the Pentology. Uh, I think as a uh, final flourish by her, I think the court was, the judges were happy to let her write the judgment and she said, uh, um, I'm not going to write a declaration, I'm not going to say anything except that the lower courts really got it all wrong uh, in terms of the perspective they took on who is the user and whose interests you have to take into account when you say, uh, is there a fair dealing or not? Uh, so um, we come back to the question of you know, collectives in the education sector. Well, uh, they, I, I don't see why they can't uh, have agreements um, on the uses which, which uh, uh, not thought to be fair, and I don't see any reason why they can't hammer out a set of agreed guidelines. But it all comes down to the end of the question of money. You're going to have a set of agreed guidelines. Are you going to ask for you know the sky and beyond in terms of of uh, uh, royalty fees? Um, if you're going to ask that, well, you know that you're not going to get an agreement. You know you you know that the education sector is strapped for, for, for finance. Where is it going to come out of? We're going to, going to you know, sack staff. Or where is it to say that this is not an, a bottomless pit of money that uh, you're going after? So um, I think that had the uh, collectives stayed reasonable in their demands and in their royalty demands particularly, this case would never have come to court. But, um, you know, you get too greedy, you end up with nothing. Yeah, I think about that too, isn't Yeah, I know. I think I think you're right about that, and, and certainly the role that Justice Stabella played. I mean, it, it's striking to me how we've had a real complete turnover in the court um, from CCH to this most recent decision, and yet it's quite clear that the that the the core thinking around balance and users' rights remains unchanged. You know that things look th things are, are you know I think set now. In Canada, at least in terms of how the court looks at it, why don't we jump quickly to the notion of user rights on the global stage? You know, after the CCH decision, you wrote about the lack of balance uh, in the WIPO Internet treaties, noting that they have owners' rights and users' duties. Um, I, I guess first, do you think anything has changed? Obviously, the Marrakesh Treaty seemed to at least open the door to greater user rights with respect to the uh, rights of the blind and visually impaired. But more broadly, do you see a pathway for imbuing international intellectual property, whether through IP treaties or trade agreements with these, with the same kind of notions that we've seen adopted by Canada's courts uh, around users' rights? Yes, that's a good question. The, um, I think we are seeing a, a, a seismic shift here. Um, the European Court of Justice, uh, which decides, uh, uh, in effect, the uh, copyright law or copyright norms for um, uh, all of the European Union, 
uh, has been traditionally quite strong in favour of owner rights and use and and authors' rights. Um, a strong, strong uh, French tradition of uh, protecting and giving, uh, treating authors uh, seriously. But they are coming round. There are one or two now decisions from the European Court of Justice which starts talking about user rights and user interests and these things having to be more seriously considered than they have in the past. Uh, and the European academics are noting this and they're welcoming it and they're, and they're running with it. And they're talking about Canadian, uh, Canadian courts and what they're doing there and, and saying how much more satisfactory this is intellectually and this uh, dead-end talk about uh, owners having rights and authors having a few rights uh, before the owner takes them all, and uh, users having limitations and exceptions. How, what, what a stultifying type of analysis that is. It doesn't give any intellectual heft to uh, this whole area. So I think we see it at the level of courts, and you're right, at the level of Marrakesh, Marrakesh Treaty, uh, in uh, 2013, well, um, yes, well, we had provisions in our Copyright Act, which uh, was assist, were designed to assist uh, people with perceptual disabilities, people who couldn't uh, uh, hear or see uh, as well as others, and so needed uh, to have different special access to works, not necessarily the same access that owners thought about giving them. Uh, so these treaties uh, uh, have, uh, looked at uh, that and have, have uh, imposed uh, uh, rights. I don't think we've changed our act significantly because we, I think we had recognized that. I think we're recognizing user rights. It's starting to link in as it should, as, uh, as a form of uh, human right. Um, and once I think that, link, uh, that linkage is made, then I think we can talk more sensibly about uh, balance because uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights back in 1948, straight after the, world, after the Second World War and uh, its later uh, treaty, the International Covenant on Social and Economic Rights, both of those treaties uh, talk about the right to access, uh, right to access to uh, uh, the world's uh, culture uh, as being a fundamental human right. And they also talk about intellectual property as uh, as being a, a, a human right as well. But I've got to tell you, it's the last of a long list. Uh, and, uh, you know, as you'd expect, the right to health and the right to education and all the rest are serious rights, the uh, right to non-discrimination, the right to equality. Uh, those are serious rights. When you get uh, down the list, well, okay, uh, right to uh, the benefit of... Uh, uh, culture is obviously important. Right to uh, intellectual property, yes. Right at the end of the list, right, and almost as an afterthought. Um, so uh, I think the linkage to user rights and the right to access culture and the right to access health are um, uh, are useful linkages. Uh, and I think that's that's where there is going to be some more growth of thinking here. Uh, after all, um, uh, we have trade treaties and we have human rights treaties, um, which is to be paramount, uh, is, is uh, 
Are we going to say that uh, the right to health is less important than the right to, uh, is more important or less important than the right to get uh, a benefit from your uh, uh, writings or your inventions? You know, if, if the population is dying, there's hardly any point in writing. Uh, then there's nobody going to be around to read. So, uh, you know, you have to take uh, uh, human rights seriously uh, uh, in, in, uh, in terms of the, of the trade treaties as well. It's one of the things that, we, that I think will be coming down the pike. Uh, and how far do the rights in, that you think that you have in trade treaties, mind you, those rights are, are expressly said to be balanced off, Rights and obligations uh, under this treaty are uh, supposed to be balanced off. How far those rights are going to be uh, superior to uh, human rights or whether you have to reach an accommodation with them? Yeah, no, I think uh, I think that 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 kind of discussion is something that we're seeing take place more and more, and uh, that's certainly positive in terms of the direction that's going. Why don't we we conclude with with this? You know, we're in the middle of an election campaign in Canada. Copyright is unlikely to be a, a major topic, but the prospect of ongoing lobbying for copyright reform is certainly with us. We see it certainly even in the immediate aftermath of the York case. We see it amongst uh, several consultations that the government put out just prior to the election campaign. So entirely possible that we're going to see a big push for yet another round of reform in uh, whoever forms the government. Uh, what are some, what thoughts do you have on, on potential avenues for copyright reform at this point in time? If uh, someone granted you the pen, uh, what would be the what would be some of your priorities? Well, uh, if someone grounded me the pen, I'd probably start from the ground up and uh, and do a wholesale review of the act, um, because uh, you know what may have been good in uh, in 1921 or 1911, uh, going back to the roots of the 1921 act here, uh, is that what we really want in in 2021? Is is it just we have this. Uh, something which uh, was uh, contemporary, uh, the contemporary what the Model T Ford, uh, which we keep patching up, you know, tossing on another uh, layer of paint or uh, sticking an aerial on here and there. Um, and, uh, and uh, But it's still, it's still this old um, bit of uh, 1911, 1921 law. Isn't it time we started thinking about... Uh, uh, this area a bit more holistically and asking what's good, what's necessary for the 21st century in terms of uh, where things have gone with the digital culture, with the internet, with the greater use of streaming and all, the, all, all of those developments. <coughs> have, we really, have we really coped with that? Is it necessary to have a law which protects authors' rights for... Uh, uh, life of the author plus 70 years, in other words, uh, something which, uh, uh, if the author is a young person, uh, will run over a century. What's, what, what, is the, uh, what is the justification for that, especially when the right is transferred and the author's uh, heirs don't get a cent out of it, uh, uh, except in, the, in, the, in some rare cases where you can uh, claim reversionary rights, but very, not very often. Um, so there are lots of areas that you could be looking at. The whole, you know, when, when, when you have um, uh, somebody come in to look at any institution, 
um, and say what what is it, what what's wrong here, what's right here, where do we start? You generally start from ground zero and say, look, if I was designing this from from the bottom up um, to do what we think is valuable and uh, economically and socially uh, today. Would I have designed it this way or would I have gone about it another way? That's what I think uh, really ought to be, ought to be done uh, uh, with uh, copyright. And we'd never have had that sort of look, look at copyright law. We've just been patching this old Model T forward um, over the over years. If you give me a pen, first thing I would try to do is to draft something in language that somebody can understand. Copyright Act, uh, if you ask a person, an author uh, or a musician or somebody who's affected by copyright, an artist, to read this act and try and figure out where they stand under it, uh, they wouldn't be able to do it. But the law here is written in the most obfuscatory way that you could ever imagine. Um, it's it's bizarre. It's a bizarre piece of law. In 1911, uh, it was a relatively short piece of legislation, quite comprehensible. Um, it has not improved with subsequent crimes. Lobbying. Well, you know the. Uh, I remember when uh, when the 1988 uh, British Copyright Act was being uh, in the course of being amended. And somebody asked, why does it take uh, 20 years or 30 years before any, any uh, copyright law is really amended from the ground up or in radical ways? And the response was, it has to be an entire new generation of parliamentarian because the, the, anyone that was involved in the last uh, uh, review of the Copyright Act will remember what a nightmare it was. Uh, we don't want to revisit that again. So it has to be a completely fresh parliament with no collective memory of what went the last time around and it would be willing to do it. Is, is there any vote? Is there a vote? In, are there any votes in copyright reform? I don't think so. Uh, a, uh, unless I'm much mistaken, uh, um, we, have, uh, we have the benefit of having the... the uh, Minister of Justice, the Attorney General, is in fact being an intellectual property and copyright expert. One of those rare uh, coincidences of, uh, that that that, are, uh, uh, that we have. But uh, do you think that uh, uh, the Honourable uh, David Lamati will be up there saying, uh, "Let's reform the copy. Let's go to the hustings on copyright reform." Um, uh, I don't think he will get a lot of support from his colleagues on that, and I don't think anybody in any, any other party would do it. So this is, in a way, it's it's reform without a vote, It's but it's a very, very serious reform. It's reform which, which says, uh, which deals with people's freedom of speech, freedom of action, and, the, and their ability also to make money, uh, uh, their economic rights. Um, there's no surprise that uh, it's contentious. Always will be contentious. There's, there's, uh, if you ever reach a copyright law where everybody goes around and says this is terrific, then you've got it wrong. I think it's a great way to close, and I think it's that's long been 
in my view, and I think the view of many in government, which, is, which has been that is a very tough policy issue, one in which you're never going to please everyone. In fact, in some ways, an indication of whether or not you've got it right is uh, whether or not everyone is at least a little bit satisfied and perhaps a little bit unsatisfied as well, given some of the balances. But you're also, I think, accurate in saying that this is not going to be one of the big issues uh, of this campaign. Uh, but could be a, a big issue once we get back to Parliament, because it, in the past certainly has proven to be, if they do move forward with, with reforms, issues that attract a lot of attention. Uh, David, this has been a, a true masterclass in, in both uh, user rights, your role in it, and uh, even more the, the development of Canadian copyright over the last couple of decades. So uh, thank you so much. It's a, a truly wonderful opportunity to, to get to, to hear your perspective and, and, and see how things have unfolded uh, over these last number of years. Thank you very much, Michael. I enjoyed talking with you. And as usual, you had a, a perceptive round of questions, which made me uh, scratch my head now and then to uh, come up with something else sensible to say. And I, I hope that's uh, had a reaction of others. It was fabulous. Thank you so much again. Thank you. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. <music>